Well, again, as Peter said, if you want to turn in your Bibles again, if you've closed them, back to that passage in Colossians chapter 1. That's what we're looking at this morning together. And we're looking at a prayer of Paul's from the letter of Colossians. Think what we can learn from that. It's always a useful thing as Christians to ask questions about why we do certain things. Otherwise, we just become traditionalists. We just do things because, well, we've always done them that way. So it's a good question to ask. Why do we do certain things when we meet together? Why do we do certain things in our personal lives as Christians? And the question I want to think about this morning is a very simple one, really, is why do Christians pray? Why do we bother praying? See, that's a question I'm often forced to ask after a Friday night youth group every week at the church. So our Friday night group, FNT, has got quite a few younger teenagers who come along to it who are from completely unchurched backgrounds. They've had very little contact with Christians or with Christianity. So they ask questions pretty much of everything that we do. And we basically try to make FNC a pretty unthreatening place for them, where the members feel welcome and safe, where they can develop good relationships with each other, and where they can hear more about Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him. But some weeks I've been struck by the, by the fact that one of the most threatening things we do at FNT is actually pray together. Every week we pray in groups. We pray about the talk or study we've just done. We pray for one another. And it's often that part of the night that newcomers can really struggle with. Some of the guys we get along really cannot take this idea of talking to God in a group. So then they're, they're just talking to thin air. And it looks like such a bizarre thing to do on a Friday night. I mean, I can often feel a bit depressed at the end of prayer times on Friday night because very few members of the group seem to think of prayer as talking to a living God, as talking to a God who's real, a God who listens to them. See, instead, their prayer requests are often designed to get a laugh from other people in the group. And there are some quite funny prayer requests. There's often no desire to pray. There's no understanding of who they're talking to and no expectation that God might respond or even listen to what they're saying. So prayer can be difficult with some 11 to 14 year olds. But thinking about prayer more generally, I wonder how true the impressions I get on a Friday night are for some adult Christians, for some of us here this morning. Do we desire to pray? Do we want to pray? Do we understand that prayer is talking to the living God? Or do we sometimes feel as if we're just talking into thin air? Do we have any expectation that God hears our prayers and might actually respond in a way that we never even imagined he would? Do we treasure prayer? in our Christian lives? Are we flippant about it? Do we just lack expectancy? Are we bored by prayer? See, there are few things in the Christian life that look so weak as a Christian praying. It looks amazingly weak when other people see us do that sometimes. We've all seen the movies where basically the characters try everything they can to get out of a situation they're trapped in. And it's only when everything else has been exhausted the one that asks, well, what are we going to do now? And the other person goes grimly, we just have to pray. It's the last resort. When everything else hasn't worked, then and only then do we pray. And how true is that of us? Why do we pray 
And an equally important question is what do we pray for when we pray? Some Christians pray with great expectancy and fervor. Others pray hardly at all. What about the things Christians pray for? These can vary widely. They can be prayers for guidance or prayers for healing, prayers for a new job or praying for a friend to come to Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you can probably remember times in your life where you've prayed a lot, where there's been a certain thing going on in your life that's led you to pray all the time, whether it's a sick friend or a sick family member, whether it's a major life decision. You see, what job should I do? Should I get married? If so, who to? What does God want me to do with my life? You've probably experienced other times when you hardly pray at all. And maybe you're experiencing a time like that today. And it's at times like that when we're struggling to pray, when we're struggling to know even why we bother praying, that Paul's words in Colossians 1 verse 9 can seem a million miles from our own experience. Just read that in 1 verse 9. Paul says, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. See, what leads Paul to such committed and regular prayer for the Colossians? And what does he pray for? That's what we're going to think about for the next few minutes. As we look at this prayer this morning, I want us to try and catch something of Paul's passion for prayer, to see why he prays, what he prays for, and to ask God to change our prayer lives as a result. So why does Paul pray here? Well, he tells us really clearly in verse 9. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. Now, for what reason? Well, that's for the reason outlined in the bit we looked at last week in verses 3 to 8, if you want to look back at that. Paul prays for these Colossians because he's heard about the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, love for their fellow Christians, and their hope of heaven. Verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. See, Paul has heard that these Colossians have become Christians. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've been brought into God's family through hearing the good news about Jesus. So Paul commits himself to praying for them. He says he doesn't stop praying for them. We might ask, why? Surely in the lives of these Colossians, the big work has already been done. And Paul's not praying for people they would become Christians. He's praying for people he knows are Christians. Surely when we know someone who becomes a Christian, who comes to faith in Jesus, we rejoice in that, but then actually we can pretty much stop praying for them. We can move on to pray for people who maybe don't know Jesus yet. That's something an attitude we can have as Christians. And surely that was Paul's great passion, was to make Jesus Christ known throughout the world to people who didn't yet know Jesus. So surely now the Colossians have made that step, Paul can now turn his attention to other places in the world, other people who don't yet know Jesus. Why does Paul feel the need to keep praying for this insignificant town called Colossae, when there's a world out there that hasn't yet heard about Jesus? Well, of course, one answer to that question 
is to see that Paul's passion to reach out to the world remained undimmed throughout his life. Even when he's in prison in Rome, in the place he's actually writing this letter from, in chains in Rome, he's actually planning to go on a further missionary journey if he ever gets let out. He wants to go to Spain. He talks about that in Romans 15. And he may well have managed to make that journey after being released from prison, before he was martyred during the reign of Nero. So the fact that he commits himself to praying for Christians here takes absolutely nothing away from his desire to share the gospel around the world. But another answer to the question, why Paul commits himself to praying for the Colossians here, is that he doesn't see their coming to faith in Jesus as the end of their story. Instead, he sees it as the beginning of what God wants to do in their lives. See, as a church, we've just come out of a week of mission. And one of the aims of that week was to put evangelism, to put sharing the good news of Jesus with people around us, with our friends and family, firmly at the centre of what we do as a church. See, like Paul, we long for people to come to trust in Jesus as Lord of their lives and as their rescuer, to come to know what we've come to know, that Jesus is absolutely wonderful, he is lovely, he is our rescuer, and he is the one who can give us the life we've all longed for. And we need to pray as a church that we'd long to share the gospel more and more with people and that God would graciously give us results in that, that we'd see lives transformed as people come to trust in Jesus. But sometimes Christians can talk as if someone's conversion, someone becoming a Christian, is the end of the story. If you want to know is, oh, have they become a Christian yet? Then I'll begin, I can stop praying for them. But that's not what Paul's interested in praying for here. Paul isn't just interested in making converts for Christianity. What Paul's interested in is making lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. What Paul wants to do is to see someone who's come to maybe just begin to understand who Jesus is, to someone who will devote their whole life to living for Jesus, to loving Jesus, and to knowing him. Just read verse 9 there. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, Paul calls on these Colossians not just to be satisfied with the beginnings of their faith, but to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And Paul calls on us to pray the same prayer, not to be satisfied with just the beginnings of faith in Christ. Paul's prayer is that we should pray that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will in our lives, in the life of ourselves as a church family. See, there's a pastor I knew up in Durham. He once told me the story of a man he'd heard about when he was growing up in Scotland. Um, and this man heard about had a dramatic conversion as a Christian and from a life of terrible sin and rejection of God. And his testimony, as they called it, the story of how he came to faith in Jesus, became extremely popular in some church circles. Because more and more people wanted to hear about just how bad this man had been before he met Jesus. And the more detail the man could add about how sordid his life was, the better. People got very excited by that. They thought the worse this man's life was before he became a Christian, 
the greater people would see God's grace was in saving him. And after a while, this man, he was asked to give his testimony so many places, he actually wrote down his busy story of how he became a Christian so he could share it with various meetings he was asked to do. And there came a point in his life when he wasn't actually asked to share this story of how he became a Christian for quite a while. So his testimony sat in his drawer for a while in a piece of paper. Until eventually, um, a mission came around to one church and people said, oh, this guy's got a great conversion story. Let's ask him to come and tell people how he became a Christian. When the man went to his drawer to lift out his testimony, his, his story of meeting Jesus, the pastor told me that actually he discovered that there was damp in the desk. And that piece of paper had been destroyed by that damp. The story of his conversion was no longer readable. That exciting detail everyone wanted to hear had been lost to damp and decay. And the point that pastor was making when he told me that story was to remind me that the Christian life is not lived on the strength of a dramatic conversion in the past or a decision that we made a long time ago. We prayed a prayer, therefore we are a Christian. See, the story of what God wants to do in our lives doesn't end with the beginning of our Christian lives. It isn't meant to be written down and then stored away as a past event to look back on. No, for any Christian to be healthy, we need to grow in our knowledge of God and our love of God. That is what Paul is praying for these Colossians. That is what an authentic and healthy Christian life looks like. That's why Paul isn't content with just the beginnings of the Colossians' faith in Jesus. He thanks God for this beginning. He praises God for opening their eyes to him. And then Paul commits himself to pray for the Colossians. He asks God to fill them with the knowledge of his will. So that is what Paul feels the need to pray for a group of Christians. And that's actually the model of the prayer we should be praying for ourselves and for one another. That we would be growing, we would not be staying static, not be looking back to past glories, maybe things we did once when we were a student and we were really involved in, in talking to people about Jesus, really passionate about reading the Bible. But now that's sort of dimmed a bit. That's not really our experience now, but at least we experienced that once and we'll just keep going until we die. See, Paul says he's praying that people will grow in their knowledge of God, will be filled with their knowledge of his will. And that should be our prayer for ourselves as well. But again, what does this phrase mean, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding in verse 9? See, Christians can talk a lot about wanting to know God's will today. But often what we call God's will revolves completely around ourselves. We want to know what's God's will for my life. Who does God want me to marry? What job does God want me to do? What house does God want me to live in? What place in the world does God want me to work in? And these are all valid questions for a Christian to ask. But when Paul prays that the Colossians will know God's will here, he means a lot more than just asking God to tell us what to do with our lives. See, Paul prays for the Colossians to know God's will 
So that verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. See, Paul doesn't ask them to know God's will so basically they can know how to make all the decisions they need to make in their lives so that God can make those decisions for them. Paul asks them to know God's will so they can live for Jesus and please Him in every way. And of course, who we marry, what job we do, where we live, all those things have an impact on the effectiveness of our living for Jesus. But Paul's prayer here, I think, when I was looking at it, is a healthy antidote for a lot of us to our self-centered praying about God's will in our lives. Often when we talk about wanting to know God's will for our lives, what we really want is that you want our lives and our choices to be more important to God than us knowing God and loving God. See, so much of our praying for God's will is self-centered rather than God-centered. We're not interested in God's will so that we will know God. We're only interested in God's will when that helps us make big decisions. See, in all our prayers, we can be guilty of basically shoving God out of his rightful place at the head of our lives and instead treating him like a sort of helpline or an agony uncle to help us out when we call to him. Basically, we can be like people in the Middle Ages who believe that the sun revolved around the earth. It's a widely held belief in the Middle Ages. The sun was a small golden circle, an orb, that rotated around the centre of the universe that was this planet. And it wasn't until an astronomer called Copernicus, I think that's right, came along that people were gradually forced to recognise that the sun didn't revolve around the earth after all, that the earth revolved around the sun. And in the same way, we are often guilty of thinking that God revolves around us. That God exists simply to serve us, to hear our prayers, to meet our needs. But in fact, Paul and the rest of Scripture makes it clear that we should revolve around God. We exist to serve God rather than God existing just to serve us when we need Him. And that is a challenge, I think, for each one of us this morning. See, it's right for us to bring our requests and concerns before God in prayer. Those big concerns and even those small concerns we feel are insignificant. God invites us to do that. He wants us to bring those requests to him, to cast our anxiety onto him. But if all we pray about is ourselves, then Paul's telling us here that we're missing out on what it really means to be filled with the knowledge of God's will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that isn't ultimately about knowing exactly what to do with our lives every minute of every day. Often God will leave us to make choices for ourselves under his guidance. See, what Paul's talking about there is about knowing God, having our eyes opened by God so that we can see him more. We can know him more intimately and love him more passionately in our lives. You see, what Paul is praying for is a God-centered life rather than a me centered life. And at this point that a lot of us can feel quite 
nervous. Because that can really sound amazingly impractical. It sounds great for a Sunday morning. We're sitting here with Bibles open in a church service. But actually, how does that work in the real world? It feels like an overly spiritual approach to life. But actually, if we think that, then we're wrong. We don't see exactly what it is that Paul is praying for. Because we have to look at the practical effects Paul describes of this God-centered living in verses 10 to 12. So we can be scared when people talk about life being all about knowing God because we fear they're describing some sort of mystical experience we could never fit around our jobs or our families or our real lives. But Paul's description of a growing, healthy Christian life is very different to that. Verse 10, We pray this prayer in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. And then he lists four ways in which our lives will be changed when we truly know God's will. The first one is that our lives will demonstrate practical love and care to those around us. That's verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's how Paul describes that life. And he may be thinking back to his description of the gospel in verse 6. He talks about it bearing fruit all over the world. And these good works that Paul talks about here are the fruit of knowing God through the gospel, knowing God through Jesus. See, here and elsewhere in Paul's letters, Paul doesn't recognize any life that claims to know God that is not also practically demonstrating God's love to the world around us. See, good works are the inevitable outcome of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Because it's God's will that his people do good. It's God's will that his people demonstrate his love to the world around us. So again, we have to realize this. That in the Middle Ages, the mystic or the hermit who runs away from the world and lives in a, in a desert or up a mountain, claiming that he will grow in the knowledge of God, in the Bible's eyes, that person is deluding themselves. So the person who truly knows God through Jesus will show that knowledge through the way they relate to others around them in the world. The more we learn of God's love and God's grace and God's compassion towards us in Jesus, then the more we need to pray that that love and grace and compassion will mark our whole lives and where we treat one another, both within the church and outside it. Again, these good works don't come easily. The Bible, again, is very clear. We're all naturally sinners. We're all naturally selfish. We've already thought about that in the way we pray often. We will repeatedly fail to do the good works that God calls us to do. But that is why Paul prays for the Colossians. He knows the Colossians need God's help in this. And so do we. We need God's help if we're going to be able to live lives of costly, sacrificial love in our day-to-day lives, if we're going to be able to bear fruit in every good work, as Paul commands the Colossians to do here. And then secondly, the life that is worthy of the Lord that Paul prays for is one that grows in the knowledge of God. That's verse 10. See again, Paul is really clear in this bit of Colossians 
and throughout this letter, there is always more of God to know and more of God to worship. There's always more of Christ to discover and more of Christ to rejoice in. See, it will take our whole lives to even begin to grasp just how gracious and compassionate and holy and good and loving God is. And the book of Revelation tells us that we're going to spend eternity worshipping God for his love and goodness and grace. So in our day-to-day lives now, we need to be praying that we will grow in our knowledge of God and will grow in our worship of God in our lives. See, a worrying sign for any Christian is when we think we've heard it all before. That we know God's character completely. That we don't need to hear about the cross one more time. We don't need to sing about the cross again. Because again, we've heard it all before. If that's you today, then we need to learn from Paul's prayer here. We need to pray that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will. And then we need to pray that we would grow in our knowledge of God. That God would show us new things about himself. New elements of his grace. New aspects of his love. Of his holiness. Because God's character is limitless. God's goodness is unfathomable. We need to pray that we would learn more and more of that every day of our lives. See, Paul prays that the Colossians would grow in their knowledge of God. And we need to pray that for ourselves. If we feel static, if we feel like we are just standing still in our Christian lives, then we can need to ask other people to pray for us in that. Maybe we need to make a bit more time to, to look at God's Word, to think, right, Lord, please show me new things about yourself. We need to make an effort to come along and just to, to study God's Word together so we can actually grow in this knowledge. But above all, we need to pray that God would open our eyes to who He is and what He's done for us. So Paul says a God-centered life will demonstrate practical love. It will grow in the knowledge of God and also it will be marked by great endurance and patience. That's verse 11. Just read that again for us. Paul says, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so you may have great endurance and patience. Now, I don't know about yourself, but endurance and patience, in my experience, are not very sexy terms today. And to keep going and to be patient can often sound just a bit dull, really. But Paul knows that every healthy Christian needs to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And then what does he say? He says we need that. Not that we'll perform greater and greater miracles, which is what you might expect. Not that we will have our lives getting easier and more trouble-free every day. Again, as we might expect God's power to work in our lives. But no, Paul prays that every Christian will be strengthened with God's glorious might so that we can just keep living for Christ. So we can just keep going for Jesus one more day at a time. See, the Christian life won't always be glamorous and exciting. Sometimes the life God calls us to will involve just being faithful in quite a lowly job somewhere that hardly anyone else ever notices. 
Somebody's God will just call us to be the best parent you can possibly be. To point your children to Jesus daily in the way that you feed them and wash them and look after them. Some of the Christian life will just involve praying for a friend or a family member to come to Christ for years on end without any sign of progress. And for us to keep going in those situations, we need endurance and patience. That's why Paul prays for it here. See, it's no good attempting amazing things for God in the short term if you yourself are unable to keep going and to stay faithful to the God who's called you in the long term. See, every Christian needs to pray that God will strengthen them so that you'll keep going however long a life God calls you to, however long God wants you to be in this world serving Him and knowing Him. We need God's mighty power so that we will endure and be patient. And that's something we need to pray for ourselves. And then the final mark of the healthy Christian life Paul prays for is that it will be joyful and thankful. Just in case we think enduring and patient means just putting a grim face on and bearing everything. Paul doesn't let us off the hook for that, unfortunately. And verse 11 and 12, Paul says, And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Paul wants Christians to be joyful. And what he means by that, he's not urging us to, to put on a brave face and to pretend that everything's great when it isn't great. To go through life just smiling all the time, even when we don't want to smile. He's just told them they will need endurance. They will need patience to keep going. The Christian life is not always easy. But whatever happens, Paul says, with absolute assurance, Christians can always joyfully give thanks to their Father. Why? Because the facts of the Gospel never change for the Christian. No matter what is happening in our lives, the facts of what God has done in Jesus will never change. See verses 13 and 14. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. God has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son He loves. God has redeemed you, has bought you at the price of His Son Jesus, so that every one of your sins can be forgiven. See, if we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, then we will know that all that is true for us. And if we keep on asking God to fill us with the knowledge of his will every day of our lives, then we will always be able to give thanks joyfully to the Father for all that God has done for us and for just how precious we are in his sight. So no matter how hard life may get for you, no matter how hard life may be for you at the moment, nothing can change the facts of what God has done for you in sending Jesus to die on a cross and in bringing him back to life. If you're trusting in Jesus, those facts will not change. And those facts are a reason to give thanks to God. None of us deserve those privileges Paul talks about in verses 12 to 14. 
God has given us them by his amazing grace and at an amazing cost to himself. So we can give thanks to him for that. For we know we're precious. So they see the healthy Christian life that Paul prays for in this prayer to Colossae. It's basically it's a God-centered life whose effects can be seen clearly. It's a God-centered life that results in practical love and care for others. It's a life that grows in the knowledge of God, that keeps going with God's strength, that enables it to keep going. And it's a life that is joyful and thankful. Basically, what Paul's praying for here is a life that begins with God, that begins when he rescues us through Jesus, that ends with God, that ends with that inheritance he has prepared for his people in the kingdom of light. And it's a life that can only be lived with God, bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God, strengthened by God every day of our lives. See, that is why Paul prays for the Colossians. Because he knows that just as no one can come to faith in Jesus without God's help, so no one can live for Jesus without God granting them a deep and intimate knowledge of who he is and of what he has done. See, sometimes we fail to pray because we make the Christian life all about us and about our concerns. In reality, the Christian life in Scripture is all about God. And it's only by praying to Him that we'll ever be able to live lives worthy of Him, ever able to live lives that please Him in every way. So again, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians for the next few weeks. Paul has a lot to teach the Colossians about the Christian life, about all that Jesus has done for every Christian. But before he does that, he prays. Before he teaches them, he prays because he knows that he can tell them amazing things about Jesus. But if God is not working in their lives, it will just go right over their heads. They will not be interested. And that is why we need to pray. We need to pray that God will give us that desire to know him, that desire to listen to what he has to say to us and to know him more each day. Why does Paul pray? Paul prays because he knows a healthy Christian life is God-centered and based on a healthy relationship with God. And Paul also knows that when Christians truly know God, then their lives please him and their lives are deeply attractive to people around them. See, the Christian life, according to Paul, is primarily about knowing God, loving God and worshipping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the life we need to be praying for. That is the life we need to pray for each day for ourselves and for one another. Because again, as Paul says, it's the only life that pleases God. That's the only life that brings joy to our experience when we learn what it means to live with God as our Father and us as his precious adopted children. So let's pray for that life now. Let's just bow our heads and pray together.